On today's episode of Urban Puritano, we scratched the surface on what made the Puritans so special. Was it their politics? Their theology? Their agenda to purify worship in the church? The Puritans are often whipping boys for secularists and Romanists alike, but are also thrown under the bus by their own heirs. If the Puritans are deplorable, are there critics like Hillary Clinton? I'm not suicidal and would never kill myself. I digress. What made the Puritans so special was their preaching. Stay tuned as we scratch the surface on the elements of Puritan preaching and offer a sermon patterned after their method. The absolute madmen. Gird your loins and stay tuned for How to Preach Like a Puritan Without Being One. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. Ever since Puritan books started to be reprinted by Banner of Truth Trust over 60 years ago, they have consistently captured the attention of a segment of the church desiring spiritual meat as part of their regular diet. Before then, such books were only available via second-hand bookstores. But what was mostly lost to history, and known only to a few readers, was that the reason these Puritan books were a source of spiritual protein, was that they were not books in the ordinary sense. They were, in essence, sermon manuscripts. What made these sermon manuscripts so appealing for popular piety? Why are they still recommended for spiritual consumption among Calvinist and Reformed believers? Is there any way that the Puritan approach to preaching the word can be reproduced in our day and age? One answer to the last question is yes, and it was given by Dr. Joel Beakey a few years ago in some talks and articles he entitled, Why We Should and Should Not Preach Like the Puritans. He should know. He is as close a modern exemplar of the prose of Puritan preaching as is in existence today. In these talks and articles, he provides the pros and cons about trying to imitate the Puritan approach to preaching. I recommend the reader look those articles and talks up. I paraphrase Dr. Beakey's list of cons. 1. Don't structure sermons by theology, but by exegesis. 2. Don't multiply points, but keep it simple. 3. 
Don't overwhelm with application, but focus. 4. Don't preach too many sermons on one text or topic, but keep it moving. 5. Don't preach too many cross-references, but only a few. The pros are as follows. 1. Preach well-rounded sermons. 2. Preach the main doctrine of your text thoroughly. 3. Preach the whole counsel of God over time. 4. Preach in a plain style that regular folks understand. 5. Preach with your life what you preach from the pulpit. Dr. Beakey concludes with, Pray for the power of the Spirit for Puritan-like preaching. I would like to take Dr. Beakey's wise counsel and take his affirmative answer a step or two further. Given that the answer is yes, there is a way that the Puritan approach to preaching can be reproduced in our day and age. The next question is, how does a novice or veteran pulpiteer preach like a Puritan without being one? My musings have to start somewhere, so a good place to start is with a bird's-eye view of a typical Puritan sermon structure. Many observe three elements, observations, doctrines, and uses or particular applications of the doctrine. This broad observation is generally true. The best and most spiritually rich Puritan sermons have often displayed these sermon divisions in one variation or another. However, there is still room to reframe the Puritan sermon structure more fully with an eye towards benefiting the people in the pews today. In his volume 3, of a history of preaching, F. R. Weber illustrated the Puritan era sermon by contrasting a tree with a great stream uniting several rivers. Whereas the several rivers can be seen as uniting and forming a great stream, thus illustrating unity and progress, the tree illustrates many branches and limbs that the further upward they go, the further they are to what unites them. Weber states, This rage for minute analysis was often at the expense of literary style and clearness. Why the rage for minute analysis? Weber states that, quote, Sermons of Puritan times reflect strongly the influence of the scholastics. Scholastic theology was rejected, but the structural form of sermons has all the multitude of main divisions and subdivisions that were so popular among the schoolmen. The aim of preaching in the Puritan era was to present every possible detail of the subject, whether it had any practical relation to the needs of the congregation or not. Weber's conclusion may be a bit too harsh. My bias tells me there must have been a method to their madness, not a rage for minute analysis. Brian Chapel gets a little closer to the truth when he notes that the Puritan era was a point of transition in the preaching tradition of the church. The great ship of preaching was being turned from the deep waters of scholastic education to the stormy waters of a new, self-consciously, reformation pedagogical approach 
many Puritans were being exposed to. Chapel notes that the Puritan sermons took the lecture format for the clergy that they received in the classroom and simply adapted them for the people in the pews. For our purposes, I want to just scratch the surface and suggest that the means that the Puritans used to make those adaptations were by critically fusing some older streams of thinking with some new ways of thinking, scholastic method, rhetoric, and Ramism united in varying degrees among the Puritans to ultimately produce a spiritually robust offering to their audiences, and centuries later, to us. Remember, our focus is not on Puritan theological treatises, but Puritan sermons and sermon structure. Therefore, the amount of scholasticism in my treatment will be zero. Sorry, not sorry, to my reformed Thomistic brothers. In general, Puritans employed five elements to their sermon structure. Taken individually, they are not unique. However, these elements united as a whole sought to accomplish the communication of biblical truth for the glory of God and for the good of his people via clear and unadulterated proclamation. Puritans were no triflers or peddlers of the word of God. They preached as from God and in the sight of God in Christ. All sermons are works of science and craftsmanship. Puritan sermons are no exception. The five elements of a Puritan sermon are 1. An introduction or epigraph. 2. Doctrine. The doctrinal big idea, the biblical proposition, the homiletical main point, or something like that. 3. Reasons, arguments, or proofs. 4. Uses, particular applications of the doctrine. And 5. Conclusion. The first element. The first element of a Puritan sermon is the introduction, or epigraph. This element introduces and briefly establishes the rationale for the inquiry into the theme of the chosen biblical text. Like an inscription on the outer wall near the entrance to a building, an introduction or epigraph identifies the structure you are about to enter. Make no mistake, exposition of the Word of God is the function of preaching, and to do so, the preacher must clearly introduce the intersection between the biblical text and the listener. The Bible is, after all, the Word of God, and the preacher at the beginning plants the seed on what and why the text addresses the audience. The text's thrust or flow of thought will be introduced and will serve to anchor the audience. They need to be anchored to the Word to perceive the biblical text's relevance and applicability to their lives. This requires a high level of dedication and discipline on the part of the preacher, both towards the Word of God and towards the people of God. One description of the godfather of Puritanism, William Perkins, was painful. He was known as Painful Perkins, or a painful preacher. 
This didn't mean that it was painful to listen to him. Quite the contrary. What this meant was that he was painstaking in all his duties as a minister of the word. He was diligent and methodical in crafting his messages with a pastor's heart towards applying God's truth to real lives. This dual concern can and should be established at the beginning in the sermon's introduction or epigraph. How long should this first element be? Dr. Stephen Lawson offers some sanctified, homespun wisdom in this regard. He said, sermon introductions are like front porches. They shouldn't be greater than the house itself. Puritans would generally agree. At least the best Puritan preachers would. The easiest way to do this is to begin broadly and end narrowly. This can be symbolically illustrated by an inverted triangle. The broad beginning can be encapsulated in an image, story, or fact that describes a pertinent life situation parallel to the concern of the biblical text. For example, in a sermon on the Lord's Prayer, I use the prayer practice of an Eastern religion that fashioned cylinders with written petitions engraved all around it as counting as prayer if the person spun it. From this, we move to the next step on the front porch and get personal. Establish the parallel need that is pertinent to the audience in a personal way. Personal, not emotional. Small arguments may be of value here that move, not manipulate, hearers into inclining their ears to hear the exposition of the word. In the aforementioned Lord's Prayer sermon, I gave a brief syllogism. 1. All true disciples of Jesus come to a point in their lives when they desire to learn from Him about prayer. 2. Every believer is a disciple of Jesus. 3. Therefore, every believer will at some point desire to learn what Jesus teaches concerning prayer. Having done this, having walked up these two steps, we now narrow our focus further by explicitly announcing the text's theme. Listeners will know exactly what your proclamation's theme, topic, doctrine, big idea, or proposition will be. They will know your sermon's theme by way of hearing you ask them a theme-specific question. Again, in the Lord's Prayer sermon mentioned above, I asked, What does the prayer life of a disciple of Jesus look like? Embedded in that question is the theme, namely, the prayer life of a disciple of Jesus. The answer to that question is the burden of the preacher to proclaim, but not according to his opinion or the opinion of others. The text of Scripture must be privileged because only it is being exposited. We do so publicly by taking the last step on the stairs onto the porch proper, by giving a brief literary, historical, and perhaps theological context before culminating in the reading of the text of Scripture. Upon finishing the Scripture reading, the preacher should pray for illumination, his own and his audience's, before continuing with the second element of Puritan preaching. Second element. 
The second element of Puritan preaching is where the preacher leads his audience into the building through the entrance into the big doctrinal idea. That's like the foyer. This element is what one pays the big bucks in seminary for. As a result of intense study, with all the hermeneutical helps and tools at your disposal, the Puritan preacher translates the meaning of his chosen text into a proposition consisting of the text's subject and what is predicated of the text. All texts have a flow of thought or a thrust to accompany its theme. This doctrinal proposition must always be what is predicated of the subject according to the text of Scripture. Having studied the text in its various contexts, according to its discernible affordances, its legitimate grammatical, historical, redemptive historical, and theological analyses, you must distill its meaning into that doctrinal big idea that in reality is the answer to the theme-related question that the text answers. For example, in this episode, we shall illustrate the five elements of Puritan preaching by a short devotional based on Hebrews 11, verses 39 and 40. The doctrinal proposition, the subject complement, the theme and thrust, the big idea, the main point, etc., is perseverance in faith is fueled by either Christ in the promise or Christ in the glorious fulfillment. The second element of Puritan preaching, then, is at once your analysis and synthesis of the text's meaning in nuclear form. This nucleus, or doctrinal big idea, or proposition, is that which the whole sermon depends upon. Therefore, if your distillation, your analysis and synthesis of the text's meaning is wrong, the rest of your proclamation will be wrong. That is why it is of utmost importance to show your work to the extent that it is relevant to your doctrinal big idea or proposition. No more, no less. No room for showing off. You can briefly display or expand whatever contextual or theological observations or considerations may be preliminary or subsidiary to the nucleus that is your properly drawn forth doctrinal proposition. After all, no text of Scripture, no doctrine of Scripture, is an island unto itself. Again, in the Sermon on the Lord's Prayer, some legitimate preliminary considerations supporting the main point of the sermon were that, in context, Jesus provoked his disciples by his example to imitate his prayer warrior lifestyle. Luke 11, verse 1. Having done that, he proceeded to provide them with the pattern for prayer for all his disciples. Luke 11, verses 2 to 4. In one of the most famous sermons preached on North American soil, Jonathan Edwards' big doctrinal idea was prefaced by a preliminary and subsidiary observation or idea. I paraphrase. Wickedness is always prone to unexpected consequences of one's own doing at God's appointed time. This simple yet complex observation of the rebellious Israelites 
during their wilderness wanderings is further distilled into a proper doctrinal big idea or proposition. It is as follows, quote, Only the mere pleasure of God keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell. Close quote. Edwards briefly defines what he means by mere pleasure and quickly transitions to the next element of Puritan preaching. And so do we. Hello, this is Urban Puritano. I wanted to take a moment to speak with you about Pilgrim Digital. Pilgrim Digital helps small businesses, solopreneurs, startups, nonprofits, churches, parachurch organizations, and even individuals design the visuals that they need to stand out. Take Urban Puritano. It started off as a podcast in the pandemic era, and it has blossomed into a podcast, a website, a blog, a hub basically for Urban Puritano, yours truly. Web design, graphic design, dynamic integration, even e-commerce, search engine optimization, social media consulting, the possibilities are endless. The bottom line is you shouldn't delay. Contact pilgrimdigital.co. Don't delay. Remember, Pilgrim Digital helps you stop dreaming and start creating. Third element. The third element of Puritan preaching is proving the doctrinal proposition or doctrinal big idea by means of reasons and arguments. Does the text itself provide them? Yes, either explicitly or implicitly. It will usually involve a combination of textual and theological considerations. Without this third element of Puritan preaching, the validity of the doctrinal proposition would remain unproven. It would merely be an assertion drifting in the wind like a plastic bag. Many sermons are just that, words drifting in the wind like plastic bags in a vacant parking lot. I recently heard a putative Reformed sermon on a passage in the Song of Solomon. It was little more than a string of flowery metaphorical assertions that the preacher must have thought were elegantly strung pearls instead of the popcorn on a string that they really were. Undoubtedly, the preacher was enraptured by his prior typological or allegorical analysis of the passage, but without providing an appropriately formulated proposition, with evidence and proof of its validity, it was a truly inferior speech that did not rise to the heavenly level of heralding the Word of God. In other words, the Reformed community isn't immune from preaching deficiencies it often identifies and decries in other communities. The Puritan method behind the madness of employing proofs, reasons, and arguments to validate doctrinal propositions is simple, yet complex. I can only scratch the surface here, as I've been doing all along. I can only illustrate the rationale of this element in Puritan preaching by citing Isaiah 1, verse 18, where God speaks to the prophet, saying, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, 
they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall be as wool. The Bible itself is one long argument proving over and over again that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Whether by his prophets or his apostles, whether in word or by deed, God has employed reasons, proofs, and arguments as a necessary means to the end of explaining himself to us in order to unite us unto himself. Therefore, in proclaiming his word, use of reasons and arguments are as indispensable as they are inevitable. Fourth Element The fourth element of Puritan preaching is what most believers designate as application. It was slightly different for the Puritan preacher of old. They called this element uses. As a result of the right preaching of the Word of God, Puritans wanted the right hearing and the right living as the supernatural consequence. Not just theology as an academic discipline, but as the art of living unto God. Puritans wanted hearers to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. Hence the term uses. Roughly, uses were particular applications of a doctrinal proposition. They may have ranged from simple to complicated, referring to either internal or external responses to the doctrinal big idea or proposition. Internal uses had to do with your mind, your will, your affections. Never was it a question of emotionally manipulating a person's fluctuating feelings. Since, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Uses had to be specific. They had to have specificity tied to the doctrine aiming at deficiencies in our lives due to sin or ignorance. External uses are whatever things find expression in our external world or in our actions. Hebrews 11, for example, contains both internal and external realities that demonstrate that true faith pervades both worlds. Of course, nothing said about uses suggests for one moment that the role of the Holy Spirit is supplanted by the preacher. Any homiletical method or an element of a sermon structure such as the Puritan one. Unless the Holy Spirit caused the ear to be opened, the preacher can say eat and drink, but his heart won't be with the preaching of the word. This aspect of preaching captured in the Puritan uses element of preaching develops with time, experience, and learning from everything and anyone around you. A man with no wife and kids tasked with preaching may have difficulty relating to those who do. He may struggle to conceive of apt uses with specificity. He may be more comfortable contemplating academic abstractions rather than the down and dirty issues where real people live. Sheep, however, smell. Some older preachers resist dedicating an element of sermonizing to the applicatory specificity of Puritan uses out of the misguided notion that it is the sole domain of the Holy Spirit to do so.
Well, so is opening hearts and illuminating minds, but never apart from the preaching of the word. Why is it within the purview of sermonizing to develop and explain a doctrinal truth, but not to develop a doctrinally derived and specific applicational use? Examples of internal uses could be 1. Of or for information. 2. Of or for meditation or adoration. 3. Of or for comfort and encouragement. Examples of external uses could be 1. Of or for confutation or reproof. 2. Of or for instruction or correction. 3. Of or for trials. Fifth element. The fifth and final element of Puritan preaching is the epilogue or conclusion. Having introduced the theme, pose the question that the text under consideration answers, read the text, prayed for illumination for yourself and your audience, declared the doctrinal proposition, provided reasons and proofs, provided legitimate uses with applicatory specificity, you are now ready to close your sermon. How can this be accomplished? A simple summary of the doctrinal big idea with thanksgiving unto God is sufficient. The Puritan preacher can then lead the congregation in prayer. As was stated in the beginning, all sermons are unique works of craftsmanship. Homiletics is an art as well as a science. It requires painstaking skill, even if it is a divine calling. Who is sufficient unto these things? Regretfully, many being trained and educated to preach today don't take the time or exert the energy to take the fruits of their exegetical labors to translate them into a true sermonic medium. Instead, too many evangelicals are content with chats and motivational talks. To our shame, too many Reformed are content with lectures or running commentaries. Repentance is truly in order. One way to remedy this situation and display fruits worthy of repentance is to heed Dr. Beakey's counsel and recommendation. The cautions of Puritan preaching notwithstanding, the prose he lists are achievable via applying the five elements of Puritan preaching. After all, the Puritan challenge, the art and science of authentic Christian preaching, still stands. Preach one Christ, by Christ, to the praise of Christ.
please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, and join me for devotional thoughts on the vindication of faith. Although this is changing, Western Christians in general, and North American ones in particular, haven't been intimately acquainted with persecution for their faith to the extent that believers in other parts of the world have been. If the worst thing that has happened to you is being besmirched as a biblicist or a hoity-toity Thomist, consider yourself blessed. None of us know what the coming days will bring as far as persecution is concerned. Even if the trajectory our nations follow bring us to the brink of death for our faith, we do know that God is sovereign over all. He is the one who has, is, and will bring whatsoever comes to pass. It is at once sobering and comforting that our God's power and justice is exerted sovereignly and for our ultimate good. Outside of these truths, we are never in a position to judge God's ways, His meticulous providence, any differently. That is why God tells us the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This brings me to Scripture. Our text is part of God's special revelation. The whole of Scripture belongs to us and to our children forever. Therefore, let us own it as precious, necessary, and sufficient for our spiritual needs. After all, Scripture and Scripture alone is the very Word of God. Our text today was written to a group of Hebrew saints. Their lives and times weren't so different than our own. They lived through momentous highs and lows. Individually as believers and corporately as a church, they lived through critical experiences that impacted and tested their perseverance in the faith. The commendation and praise for Old Testament saints found in Hebrews 11 is nothing if not a commendation of the praiseworthiness for perseverance in the face of obstacles. Obstacles that bid us to abandon belief in the glorious gospel of Christ. That struggle is not to be dismissed or its intensity underestimated. But as a backdrop, Hebrews 10.25 and 35 is most certainly contextually relevant. The exhortations and warnings of the former set up the argument, illustrations, and conclusions of Hebrews chapter 11. The argument of Hebrews 11 includes examples of ordinary saints still subject to sin who were nevertheless chosen by God's mere good pleasure to produce both internal and external realities by faith. The bottom line is, by faith, these Old Testament saints persevered, and by their doing, they advanced God's redemptive purposes. Make no mistake, the road of faithful perseverance is a road paved with much suffering. The degrees of suffering may differ, but as the Apostle Paul wrote, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, 
but also to suffer for his sake. Hebrews 11 concludes with a summary of the matter. The writer doesn't simply commend the Old Testament saints listed to the original audience and by extension to us. The writer provides the motivation and incentive to animate our continued perseverance in the faith. The sole legitimate and lasting reason the Hebrew believers then, and any believers since then, can rely on to fuel their perseverance in the faith is found in the redemptive purposes of God. You may sometimes go to sleep or wake up asking yourself, what's the point of persevering in the faith? My friends, family, or loved ones don't support me. Society treats me like a leper. Has God given me a lasting incentive and motivation that can fuel my perseverance in the faith? Our passage gives us the answer by means of a summary consideration of the Old and New Testament, namely this. Perseverance in faith is fueled by either Christ in the promise or Christ in the glorious fulfillment. I say again, perseverance in faith is fueled by either Christ in the promise or Christ in the glorious fulfillment. Let us read Hebrews chapter 11 verses 39 and 40. The word of God says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for your mercy, which is new every morning. I thank you for this word. Illumine our hearts, illumine our minds to understand what you would have us believe and what you would have us do. Father, I pray that you would grant us the perseverance in the faith to overcome all obstacles before us. We ask for your honor and your glory in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. What's the point of persevering in the faith? Is there really a lasting incentive that fuels perseverance in faith? Our passage doesn't shrink away in answering these pressing questions. I repeat our doctrinal theme for today. Perseverance in the faith is fueled by either Christ in the promise or by Christ in the glorious fulfillment. Let's divide our analysis into two major headings. Number one, for Old Testament saints, the lasting motivation that fueled them to persevere in the faith was the promise. Verse 39 says, And all these did not receive the promise. All these refers to the people of God during Old Testament times, represented by the persons mentioned in Hebrews 11. Verses 13 through 16 cites the patriarchs of Israel to remind us of their persistent desire for a better country or land, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This quickly prompts a question. Did all the physical descendants of the patriarchs possess this desire and longing for a better country? 
To ask it is to answer it. When reading Scripture, it's better to distinguish between the physical descendants and the spiritual descendants of the patriarchs. The former lacked the fuel to persevere in a lasting way in response to the promises of God. The latter embraced the promises of God by faith, as the author of Hebrews delineates in Hebrews 11. Confirmation of this premise about distinguishing between the physical and spiritual descendants of the patriarchs is seen earlier in Hebrews 11 when Rahab is without hesitation or controversy hailed as possessing the fuel of faith despite not being a physical heir of Abraham. The children's Sunday school song then is in line with the scriptures which testify that Father Abraham did indeed have many sons and daughters. Rahab was one of them. So are you, I hope. The upshot of the case of Rahab being a spiritual, not physical, descendant of the patriarchs is that God displays his sovereign glory in granting her the great privilege of being from that point forward grafted into the actual physical lineage of the promised Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Was this by accident or some oversight? With God, such things don't exist. In fact, Hebrews 11.16b says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. The reign of God really is a reign of grace. Grace to sinners like Rahab and us. That's why verse 39 tells us all these, including Rahab, obtained a good testimony through faith. These Old Testament saints didn't obtain a good testimony from their normal lifestyles and decisions. How could they? They were divine lawbreakers and sinners. Rahab was a harlot. The patriarchs and their physical descendants were a hot mess. Neither did all these Old Testament saints obtain a good testimony from the world. Remember, the true people of God in the Old Testament period, the remnant, overcame disbelief and the deceptive comforts of the surrounding majority. The fuel of faith impelled them to persevere, and because of this, the writer of Hebrews concludes that all these are of whom the world was not worthy. All these who obtained a good testimony did so from God. The scarlet thread woven throughout the First Testament is the greatest divine promise of obtaining a good testimony from God and from God alone. How else but by God's sovereign grace? The kind of grace exemplified in the salvation of exactly the kinds of people listed in Hebrews 11 whether they were physical descendants of the patriarchs or not. This is the principal overarching promise Old Testament saints, having seen afar, were assured of, embraced, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Nevertheless, the plan of God's great work of redemption, of gathering a holy nation unto himself by the person and work of Christ, was only anticipated by the promise. But even the promise was sufficient to fuel their faith to persevere. This prompts another question. Doesn't verse 33 say that the Old Testament saints obtained promises? Yes, 
definitely in one sense. But those promises consisted of temporal, earthly or typological shadows of a reality infinitely greater in the eternal, heavenly, and antitypical fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. Yes, Old Testament saints had victories and triumphs. They had consolations and prayers answered. But the physical kingdom of Israel failed. The Levitical priesthood could only accomplish so much. The prophets could not straighten crooked hearts. The law of Moses served its purpose, to expose the depths of our misery and need for a Savior, no matter who we descended from. Ultimately, we descended from Adam, and in Adam's fall, we sinned all. By way of transition, I'd like to call your attention to the momentous point in redemptive history. It displays the lasting motivation of an Old Testament saint in action. Here we see the fuel of faith in the promised Messiah come to fruition. We see in the episode recorded in Luke 2, 25-35, a transition from seeing afar off, being assured, embracing, and confessing everything pertaining to the promise of deliverance in Christ, to actually seeing Christ himself. Hear the words of Luke 2, 25-35. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The thing promised, that is Christ, was now being exhibited to all by incarnation. The people of God, from that time forward, have fueled their faith by recognizing the divine promise has been fulfilled. This leads us to our second heading. 2. For New Testament saints and forward, the lasting motivation that fuels us to persevere in the faith is the promise now personified or fulfilled. John Gill rightly observes, Now since Old Testament saints so strongly believed and persevered against all manner of obstacles, before Christ came, how much more should saints now, since Christ is come, and the promises received and fulfilled, go on persevering in the faith? Verse 40 says that God has provided something better for us. Better than the promise, as objectively good as that was in function, 
is the promise in the fullness of its fruition and fulfillment. The promise of salvation in Christ was something altogether good, but the incarnation of Christ to accomplish our salvation is altogether better. Remember, the incarnation of Christ was a means to an end. It was for a specific purpose for the people of God, namely, to provide the once and for all better sacrifice, efficacious for the elect. And not only a better sacrifice, but a better priesthood. And not only a better priesthood, but a better high priest. And not only a better high priest, but a better covenant. These truths are taught to us not only in Hebrews, but in all of Scripture. The incarnation was to definitively effect God being with us. And in considering what fuels a believer's perseverance in the faith, whether in Old Testament or New Testament times until now, we come to learn once again that Christ is the center and scope of Scripture. Christ promised and Christ fulfilling the promise in the Incarnation. Scripture either points to or pictures Christ in the promise or personifies Him in its glorious fulfillment. Certainly, Hebrews 11 colors within the lines of this maximal Christocentrism to give you, dear believer, the fuel you need to persevere in faith and not flounder by sight. Dear believer, we possess Christ truly in the fulfillment of the promise. Is that a light matter to you? What is greater, the shadow of Christ or the reality of Christ? Take courage and persevere in the faith because Christ has fulfilled his great promises. No one likes to participate in something without knowing that at the end, something worthwhile awaits. Whether we are young or old, playing a sport or involved in educational studies, we all participate in things that we hope will result in some desired benefit or result. The people of God throughout redemptive history were no exception. Believers today are no different. Our feet grow weary. Our hands hang down. Our hearts become discouraged. Our eyes become short-sighted. Our ears become dull. But our passage today is the heavenly means by which we can find strength, encouragement, and a clear sight. Do you hear God's gracious provision in Christ promised? Do you understand God's gracious and glorious provision in Christ, in the promise, and Christ in the glorious fulfillment? This, dear brothers and sisters, is the fuel for our faith, the God-ordained fuel for persevering in the faith. By way of application, consider the following uses. First, for meditation. Given that Christ is the central theme of Scripture, whether in promise or fulfillment, what does that imply for your life? The Apostle Paul declared that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That means that God's work of redemption in Christ becomes the axis upon which the poles of our existence rotate. Christ is not merely an appendage we store in a container, as it were. Christ cannot be compartmentalized. He is our reason for living, obeying, and loving God and others.
So we align ourselves with God's purposes by a concordant, faith-focused, Christ-centered, and Christ-word gaze. The author of Hebrews, a few verses ahead, commands us to look unto Jesus. There is simply nowhere else to look. This is all-encompassing as far as Scripture is concerned, because as we've been considering all along, Jesus is found both in Old Testament promise and New Testament fulfillment. Is learning of Jesus through Scripture so heavy a burden? If you think so, Jesus himself said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. These gracious words of our Lord to you confirm that he is indeed the author and finisher of faith. Meditate with faith upon Christ's words to you, dear Christian. A second applicational use would be for correction. There are a great many who misunderstand Scripture to teach that the people of God are actually composed of two distinct people groups, namely the Jews in the Old Testament and the Church. Classic dispensationalism still holds sway as an overarching interpretive approach to the Bible. But the people of God have always been singular, not separated. It's simply an error both in logic and exegesis to conclude that because of real differences in the people of God during the times of the promise of Christ and from the fulfillment of the promise of Christ forward, that it necessarily implies God has two peoples. In fact, the logical implication of the final words of Hebrews 11.40 only permit us to conclude that the people of God is composed of one body. It says that they should not be made perfect apart from us. However real the discontinuity was between the people of God during Old Testament times and the people of God during New Testament times and forward, We have all been saved identically by God's grace and righteousness. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether B.C. or A.D., the only object of faith is either Christ promised or Christ in the promise fulfilled. Much more could be said. Our third and last applicational use would be three for doxology. Doxology means praise, worship, or adoration. Hebrews 11:39 and 40 transports us to heavenly territory, reminiscent of the book of Revelation, that type of worship. A due consideration and meditation on the following two things found in verse 40 will cause us to lift our gaze from our performance to God's provision. First, consider the three words. God having provided. In these words, we see the harmony of God's attributes. His omniscience, his wisdom, his omnipotence, his will, his sovereignty, all working together to provide his people with the meticulous outworking of his salvation. The work of redemption in Christ had no possibility of failure because it was God who was accomplishing it. God provided. However, And second, in the two words, for us, we see God's attributes of goodness, mercy, love, and grace towards us. 
This is precisely the basis of worship we find the saints exulting over in Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Let us read it. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The basis of worship, then, is that God and God alone saves, and He alone is worthy of all acts of worship. His people can only respond in adoration. Why? Because it was by grace alone, through faith alone, that we have obtained from God a good testimony to be united to Him forever. Dear brothers and sisters, whether your persecution is heavy or light, whatever the temptation to compromise your faith, or worse, to abandon it, our Savior Christ the King reigns and is soon to be returning. But if he tarries, his promise is fulfilled, and he grants to us his victory already achieved. His word declares, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you persuaded by this, dear brothers and sisters? You have before you God's precious, Christ-centered motivation to fuel your faith that you might persevere. In conclusion, dear brothers and sisters, let us remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The saints of the Old Testament had the great privilege of fueling their faith with Christ found in the promise. And if God sustained his people back then with the shadow of Christ, how much more will he sustain you with the substance of Christ? That is why Christ the King has always been the object and vindication of our faith.
Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers. 